Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share the recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guests are members of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, and they'll be sharing their story of recovery from food addiction. Uh, Olivia and Dean, uh, welcome to the Living Free Show today. Hi. Hi. Hello. So we usually talk about growing up and the things that influenced us, the family, school, you know, all that sort of stuff. So with you, Olivia, what was the sort of earliest memory that you've got of growing up? And then tell us a bit about your family life. Okay, so... Um... I'm 71 years old and I was born on New Year's Eve. And what I'm told about the day of my birth is that my mother went into labor at 5.30 in the morning. I was born four hours later. My parents checked out of the hospital with me at noon and my mother had a party for 35 people that night. And that story really, I think, captures a a snapshot of what it was like growing up. My father died of alcoholism in his early 60s. He was having blackouts and raging blackouts at the age of 15. So by the time I was born, he was well into his addiction. My mother was died just a few weeks after my father in her early 60s of um, smoking-related cancer. So both of my parents, the arc of their lives was very much informed by their addictions. I had my first binge on a food item when I was five years old. And it was in response to a situation that involved my mother asking me a question And the question was, should I let your father come back home tomorrow and stay with us? And in that moment, I clearly remember remember the question, remember my mother's face, remember the circumstances that led up to my father leaving abruptly. And I lied. I said, no, I, I want you to let him come back, even though I was terrified of the man. But I remember thinking, it would be scarier to be sitting on our couch in the front of the house, homeless, and all the neighbors seeing us than having this raging alcoholic come back and inhabit the house. So my first binge, I remember as though it were yesterday. And what happened to my life at that point was, I think the way I can describe it is it was almost like I was living in a split screen world. On the one hand, I was this terrified, traumatized child who was told whatever happens in the house stays in the house, what happens at school stays at school. So there was never a conversation with a trusted teacher or a next door neighbor that I was a terrified little girl. On the other hand, I was bright and very creative and athletic and by all accounts in the outside world I was just fine because I could do things and I I love language and I could converse with any adult and very much be a part of the conversation so what I remember early on was it was really these two worlds and I should say that I'm I'm one of five children my older brother had his birthday yesterday. He's a year older than I am. And then a year and a half after I was born, my parents had twins. And a year after that, they had my youngest brother. So we were, our family grew very quickly. And my father's addiction 
contributed to him being an under earner. And so that put stress on the family as well. So to, to just sort of put it in a nutshell, my childhood really was an inside outside, like, like two different people functioning. And the food kind of kept things in their place. When I got overwhelmed at home, I ate. When I got overwhelmed out in the world, I ate. And the food from that point was just a, 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 like an extra companion for me. Did you find it soothed you? Was that the attraction? You know, it kind of, it was like, it was like a spike of energy. It was like, whoosh, go up and then fall down. And then, of course, as I got a little older and the fat jokes started to hit my ears, and, and I should say my father's nickname for me was Fatty, which was cruel and awful and just made me feel, feel so much less than, but I couldn't stop eating. I, I just, no matter how many hours I roller skated or played a ball game or whatever, I just had this gaping hole that felt for a moment like the food filled it up and then it didn't because the self-hatred, the cycle of self-criticism and why am I so lazy and so stupid and I wouldn't be fat if I, if I were smart, if I could just find the answer, if I could just find the solution. So what about friendships? Did you, um, did you have difficulty making friends? I, you know, I really didn't. I, we, I lived in a neighborhood where there were probably 30 kids that we would play sports and games with. There was always somebody to be jumping rope or riding bikes or whatever. And my friends really were across the spectrum. And I also was very much a good companion for elderly people. And there were several elderly immigrants that lived in my neighborhood. They were refugees or immigrants after World War II. And in fact, my first job was at eight was being an after-school companion to an elderly woman who had had a stroke. So I kind of, I, I, I felt like I could hold my own at that time around people. That of course changed as my addiction progressed. So what was your eating pattern? How did you, how did you eat? I would say if you had to chapter, title that chapter of my life, it was fast and furious because sitting at the table with my family, particularly for dinner or for holidays was get it down as fast as you can and just go and do dishes, just get out of the room. So I would say fast and furious, quantities for sure didn't matter if it was salty sweet sour rancid it didn't matter if it if it could go in my mouth it, could, it would go in i um snuck food i stole food i was i was really good at um smoothing over desserts so it looked like no one had taken a sliver of them for some reason my school thought that i was really trustworthy and they put me in charge of the concession stand at the school and i was stuffing candy bars in my pockets every time i had duty i mean it just i was there was never a moment that i felt physically satisfied literally until the age of 59 when i came into fa and i had my first abstinent day in the program and i just went oh I've had enough food for today and I've only eaten three times. How did that happen? Okay. Uh, well, I might swap over to you, Dean. So what was life like for you and your family and growing up and going to school and friendships? What was all that like? So for me, I was, I was born, I'm the youngest of four. My mother had me when she was 23. So, and my brother's almost seven years older than me. So when you start to math that out, you, you see that my biological father, my mother had started their family really young. And it was a real point of uh, when I, when I came into the program, I'm 50 years old now, when I came into the program, I was 34 and I was filled with resentments, tip, mainly aimed at my mother and my sister who was two years older than me. And that resentment was just a festering, festering wound for me. And so um, but when you look at my childhood, you know, now with the with the lens of a, a few years of recovery and working the steps and, you know, behind me or in front of me, however you want to say that, 
yeah, I had a decent childhood, you know, like the stories and the, and the, you know, the little kernels of truth that I had and all these stories that I told myself over the years that progressed into these big, really, they became lies, you know, are amazing when you start to peel those things back and see what the truth was. Yeah, there was some, there was definitely some truth in a lot of those things, but I call it a disease, this addiction, this disease that I have really latched onto a lot of that stuff and, and progressed all those years, right? And so we moved a lot. Um, I went to, thir- in the United States, we do, um, I think it's everywhere, but uh, 12 years of school and then and then college. And my, my first 12 years of school, I went to 13 different schools, yet I went to the same high school for four years. So we moved a lot. Uh, my, my, my parents divorced when I was when I was seven, so my mom was 30, raising four kids. My biological father had remarried a year later. At one point, the four of us went to live with him and his second wife, and she had five kids. So I, I grew up seeing things and being around things and witnessing, I mean, just a lot of, I, I have two girls today, and I, I they haven't witnessed a percentage, <laughs> a single percent of what I what I saw in my life. And it's also a different time, but nonetheless. And I remember very vividly as I, I, I remember where I was standing, what, what which particular house it was, what direction I was facing. I think I was nine years old. I don't remember exactly the age, but I remember standing on the on the driveway of that house, making this promise that the words I can put to it today are, when I grow up, I'm going to eat what I want, when I want, and I'm never going to go to bed hungry. Because I had this idea, and again, this is one of those lies, that I went to bed hungry. And when I look back on my life, I never went to bed hungry. I went to bed with feelings. And for me, I learned that my feelings present in my stomach as that that thing people call hunger pain. And I used to suffer from real bad anxiety, and that used to present physically in my chest. And I used to suffer from really bad panic attacks, and those would present in my head. So, So my body... When I, as, as my disease progressed and I started feeling the, the panic, the anxiety and, and the feelings, the emotions and the feelings, it, it's physically in my body. And so I thought I was hungry all the time because <laughs> I was always having a feeling. I was a sensitive kid. I was a good kid. I mean, I didn't cause a lot of trouble, but I used to run the streets and, and you know, just, I mean, because that was, that was, again, that was the time. And, you know, just uh, like I said, in a lot of different environments. So um and I use food. I mean, my earliest memories are of food. When I was a kid, if I had an odd job and I made a quarter or a dollar or five dollars, I was straight to the straight to the candy store, straight to the store to get candy, and and pretty much did that till I walked into the rooms of FA. I ate like a nine-year-old until I was 34 years old. Not kidding. And I got to over 350 pounds at one point. So yeah. And I'm like 157 today, so it's crazy. <laughs> yes, it's amazing, isn't it? The, ch- the change that can occur both ways, yeah. So what about friendships? Were you easily able to make friends? Yeah, I was, yeah. And I think that had to do with being the youngest of four. So my siblings were already out in the world. And so we were, and, and we moved and we moved a lot, which I know a lot of people, that's, that's always a struggle, but it wasn't a struggle for me because on the outside, I had a, you know, an outgoing person that gregarious would be one uh, adjective people would put on me. Um, I like people. I get, I get energy from people. I also like now, especially with the global pandemic, I also like a lot of me time too, but, but I, I'm both, I'm an ambivert, I think it's called. Um, and yeah, I made friends easy. I was in sports, you know, and, and it's real interesting because the, the main two cities that I grew up in bordered, they're right next to each other. And it's like the neighborhood I lived in, that where I went to the same high school for four years was actually the neighborhood that the Crosstown High School went in. So I was friends with all the people at the, not all of them, but people at the Crosstown High School and the high school I went to. And I went to elementary school with most of them because I went to almost every elementary school, you know, so, so I was, you know, I I was a social guy. In fact, my education, I majored in, in fun times. I I was doing barely enough to get out of school. Like I, by today's standards, I would not graduate high school. I'm not a, not a dumb guy, but what I know today was that this disease robbed me of the ability to focus in school and, and really pay attention and have the discipline to do the work. I was just cutting up and having a good time. (laughs) So, yeah. So what was your family thinking while you were doing that? Were they invested in you? No. 
Uh, no, everybody was kind of doing their, my, my two oldest siblings had kind of in their early teens had kind of, you know, at, at, we called it run away at that time, but went off to live their lives and get into their own set of addictions. Right. And, um, and, and that, that with my mom and my sister, the one, she was two years older than me, they had a lot of the same things in common and really liked each other. But as a kid, and even as, you know, leading up into recovery, I couldn't reconcile that. I thought that they didn't like me. I thought that they were leaving me out. And what I learned is that, yes, I'm a good person and people like me like to be around me, but I also have this, this other side of me, especially in the disease where I'm not that great to be around and they liked being around each other. So I felt excluded. And then that started that just flaming resentment at those two. And I just have to say, in case it doesn't come up later, like not at all today. I mean, the, the recovery and working the steps, I, I just FaceTime with my mom today. Uh, my, unfortunately, my sister passed a few years ago. She got cancer, but my relationship with her healed before she even got diagnosed. And because of recovery, because of FA and the, and the, the, the 12 steps, really, I mean, it, it, it's, it's beautiful. It's just, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Well, listen, we might take a short break there. She's a daddy's girl, got a mama's hair. He had old school vibes on the day we met. I can't lie, but the photos we had bring up all the memories. Yeah, we tried once too many times, cause there's too much history. song was Middle Ground by Rachel Fame, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, Call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. Get lost in science.
to 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Olivia and Dean and talking about recovery from food addiction with the help of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. So, Olivia, we, we finished with you talking about, you know, friendships were easy and school wasn't such a, such a big deal. But what happened when you left school and started work? How did life change? Well, I can say that when I left home, there were several really clear messages. One was, we're a family that comes from behind, so you have to be out ahead of the herd. Like, it's not enough just to be average or ordinary, we have to like propel ourselves across the finish line. Also that having information is a valuable currency. So the more information you have, the easier it's gonna be to propel yourself forward. And I think what I left home with was this urgent need to better myself. And and I always wanted to live in a big world. The disease in many ways was making my world smaller year by year. But the things that I did were, for example, when I went off to college to university, I took double the number of classes that most people did because I thought, well, what if this is my last semester and I'll never be able to go back to school? So I was always like doubling things up. And when I finished my undergraduate work, I went to graduate school in two different places at the same time and started a job. And then when I started my job, it wasn't enough just to be an educator. I also became a performance and art, uh, an artist and a writer. And I worked for big non-governmental organizations. And how my disease progressed, for example, was I would spend from Monday through Friday, working a really tough job as a teacher with lots of homework, get on a red eye Friday night, fly to New York, Washington, D.C., sometimes out of the country, doing human rights work, have papers that I'd read all night, you know, so I'd be ready for my classes on Monday and take the red eye back on Sunday night. That kind of fast and furious acceleration, get out of my way, I need to be here, um, I can't pause and take a vacation. I'm not going to stop and, and do self-care if I'm not feeling well. That's how the disease really started to drive my life. And I remember I went for a interview for a, a research fellowship at one point, and I walked into the room and the interviewers all looked up and they said, I think you're in the wrong room. And, and, and I said, well, I think I'm supposed to be here. And they said, no, 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 we're expecting someone much older because you couldn't possibly have that resume, admit, resume and be what you look like. And I thought that was like the most gigantic compliment, but I look back now on that in recovery and it's like, I don't know if that's such a badge of honor. I mean, to go through my life at such a hurricane speed, but that's how I was eating. And as I ate, so the rest of my life became this huge binge as well. It's, it's like nothing in my life was right size until I found recovery. Nothing. So it must have had an impact on your relationships. Oh, it did. It most definitely did. I was um, not the most patient, loving and kind partner in a romantic relationship. I was, um, if you didn't know something, I definitely needed to inform you just for your own good. I could be a five-year-old with my hands on my hips and just dare you 
not to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, I was five when I went into the food and my my worst behavior is a five-year-old on the playground that's saying, you can't make me. Or I've got the ball, you don't kind of thing. So I had really, for the most part, really good professional relationships. And I will say there came a point in my life where I went, wait a minute, I am just not good at deep, intimate, personal relationships. I'm putting that on pause until I sort myself out. And I put myself on pause for at least two decades because I knew, I knew there was something wrong and everywhere I looked, therapy, spiritual groups, literature, you know, um, self-help, this and that, everything that I tried gave me some information, but it didn't really fix what was wrong with me because I didn't understand that I was an addict. I just didn't know that. So what things did you try? Well, I, I'll just start with, with the diet part. I tried diet pills and thank God those didn't go on for very long because I really liked how they felt. And I could easily see myself doing cocaine and, and meth if I, if I had stayed with them. I tried non-Western spiritual traditions like Native American traditions. I tried meditation which was incredibly difficult for me because I had such a racing mind. I tried running. I would run 60 to 90 minutes a day. And when I look at my pictures running races, I do not look like a lean, mean running machine. I am a bit plump and chunky because the more I ran, the more I ate. Because I, you know, I had banked all these calories that I had burned. I tried, um, oh, read a whole bunch of books, looked for a mentor or a guru and tried, you know, didn't sit at the feet of people, but thought if I was in close enough proximity to whatever they were doing, somehow it would just like emanate onto me and I'd get fixed kind of thing. So what caused you to start looking for something serious to fix your problems? After trying all those things. And they didn't work. So what, did, you, did you feel that there must be something? I felt there was something, but there was a point about maybe seven or eight years before I found program where I just said, okay, women should take up as much space as they, as they can in the world. I'm so done with this dieting. And I was well over 200 pounds at that point. And I just kind of gave up. I'm, I'm always going to be the fattest girl in the room. Um, I somehow that brand of being called fatty in my childhood by my father, it's just, it's okay. That's who I am. Uncle, I give up. I, I just, I can't look anymore. So what changed? Why did you, why did you seek help again? A friend told me that she had gone to some meetings and that if I went in the rooms, two things would happen. One that I would get in a right size body and never have to think about dieting again. And, I, and it, to myself, I said, that is complete nonsense, never gonna happen for me. But then she said, and people say miracles happen if you stay in the rooms. And it was easier for me to bank on a miracle than it was for me to think of myself ever not being the fattest girl in the room. And I couldn't even see that that would be a miracle if that happened. And so I went to my first FA meeting and it was, and a complete stranger walked across the room and said, you're new, do you want to get started? And the very next day I weighed and measured food and I went to bed that night and it was like the food didn't have me by the throat. And I went, hmm, hmm. I, I'm, I think I'm going to stick around for a while. Thanks. I'll change back to you, Dean. So we sort of left you having traversed lots of schools, very friendly person, but very, I guess, isolated. So where did the food take you when you left home and left school? Yeah, so I, so this is a, as all diseases are, a progressive one. So, you know, I decided to go to quote unquote college, junior college, uh, when I jumped off the stage with my high school diploma, which I probably shouldn't have gotten, but I got. 
looked around and said, oh, I'm not going to see my friends. You know, they're all going off to school. I did have a job lined up, but um, for the summer, but, uh, you know, so then I, I think I enrolled in school like the next day or whatever. And, um, and I tried, I tried to go to, you know, junior college and, and do the, do the work. I just couldn't do it. And I actually had tried two or three other times into my early twenties and I just literally couldn't do the work. It's something I actually would love to go try to do at this point. I mean, I'm going to, I have a job and everything and I'm gainfully employed, but um, it just kind of proved to myself, you know, through in recovery that I could do it. But, you know, it, when my higher power guides me in that direction, I'll, 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 I'll definitely be open to it. But so I tried that and, and I just couldn't school. Right. And look now, you know, we use the term higher power and recovery. I look now how really my higher power has been with me my whole life back all the all the stories of my childhood how I was just always guided left instead of right because right was bad things happening but left you know and so early like I think I was 20 years old I just I, I picked up the phone and I called a couple of companies and I got interviews and I took a job and I uh, I, I fell into uh, what I then called a career. I, I no longer call it that. I've, I've heard in recovery that career is ego. I just have a job today, <laughs> just one among many in my job. But um, but I've been in the same field for you know 30 years at this point, uh, roughly the same field. But, you know, I got this job and kind of, uh, you know, fell, fell into this thing. And so then, you know, so that was my my 20s was just the the more i had access and the more money i had and it, you know it, the the better the the food whatever the better the food types i would go so my body just little by slow year over year i was just putting on weight and i was progressing in in this you know this job field that i was in you know and also having friends and um, I was in a relationship from 18 to 25 so a 7 year relationship and into my 30s is uh, my late 20s early 30s is when you know the disease had gone to whole other levels and you know really just brought me to my knees for lack of a better term so what was a typical day like for you in your in your late stage eating not good not good so this this gregarious professional lots of friends, lots of, you know, concerts and sporting events and sports and, you know, just very active life uh, was just, just being shut down, um, just being shut down. Uh, I was really having a hard time showing up to life to these friends. And in fact, like the, the weekend before I came into program, I started the program on a Monday, that weekend before one of my really good friends had gotten married and it was all I could do to show up. If it wasn't that friend, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I don't know that I could have, I could have made it out there. So, and, it, and, and my thoughts were always how much, you know, what am I going to eat next while I'm eating something? It's what am I going to eat next? And is it next to me? Do I have to go procure it? it do I, do I call it in? Do I, you know, and what, what's going to scratch the itch or what's going to help, you know, whatever, because I, I just, that's all I thought about. That's all I thought about was eating and, and getting it into my body. And this was, you know, like I said, well over 300 pounds doing this. A lot of people I talk to when they first get a bit of freedom outside the home and get a car and things, their eating kicks off because they can eat wherever they like, whenever they like. So was that the same for you? No, mine had kicked off way back when I was a kid. <laughs> so, so I've, like I said, I've always used food. So that's, I think what I was saying was that as I had more means, like for me, my weight started coming on in seventh grade because that year I got lunch money. I got to buy what I wanted. So I, my parents gave me money to buy my food. So I bought junk food. And then I actually got enterprising and I bought candy. I bought candy at the at the liquor store, the, the drug, whatever, took it to school, sold it to kids, sold my candy, made money, always had candy in a pocket full of money. Right. So and then, at, yeah. And then as I started driving, I could go to this kind of restaurant or, that, or my friends would drive. And I even like worked in a restaurant as a teenager and I had friends that worked in other restaurants and we would like they would come in and I would give them food and I go to their restaurant. They give me food like so food was always it. If we went out dancing to a club or whatever, my friends liked to drink. I drank and I drank alcoholically and I did drugs, but I could take it or leave it. I could care less about alcohol. I could care less about drugs, but I was always moving the crowd to the restaurant after the, after the club or whatever, because I had to eat. We ate before and we ate after <laughs> that. Yeah. 
So did your friends notice that? Notice your eating? If they did, they didn't say anything. And obviously you make friends with people that are like you. So so my crew, I had this little crew in my, in my uh, when did we all hook up? Like my mid-20s, these, these three other buddies of mine. And we were just, you know, we're all, I, I'm not going to label them, but we're all alcoholic and food addicts. And we did, we had so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. Tell it for me, for me until it wasn't fun anymore. You know, it got to a point where it wasn't fun anymore. And one of those guys is the guys that got married right before I came in the program. So, yeah. <laughs> so why did you sort of seek help if it was fun? When did it stop being fun and why did you seek help? Yeah, because the pain got so great for me. So so while I was over, you know, my physical body was, was I was having lots of physical problems like with plantar fasciitis and body aching and heart palpitations and acid reflux and sleep apnea and panic attacks, anxiety attacks, depression, all of that stuff was happening. And like I said, my world was just felt like it was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I had sought out a lot of different diets, uh, yoga, meditation. Um, you know, I sought out a lot of different things none of those things eliminated sugar and flour like our program does like 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 the alcohol you know like aa eliminates alcohol right all these things did it and any diet that i tried or any program that i tried my thinking was when i get to whatever point along in the program it's going to be a food reward so that's not ever going to work because of course my food reward wouldn't be something healthy it would be something that I'm constantly thinking about even while I was trying to do these other programs. So I felt completely lost and completely broken, like especially around food. And I am and always have been and hopefully always will be a seeker. I want, I always want to better myself and improve myself. And these last 15 years have been the most uh, improving and betterment that I could ever do because I've put the, all these drugs down, <laughs> the food, sugar, flour, all these drugs. And I picked up the spiritual life, these spiritual tools that we have in our program, and my life just keeps getting better now. Whereas before, it was just getting worse. Like nothing was going well. Yeah. Okay. Listen, we might take another short break there.
Uh, and that was another song by Rachel Fame, uh, Even If I Wanted To. Again, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Olivia and Dean, and we're talking about recovering from their obsession with food with the help of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. So, Olivia, you talked about going to your first FA meeting and being an instant convert, but what's it like to go to a self-help group for the first time and... You know, were you scared? Were you, did you know what to expect? Oh, I, I didn't know it was a 12-step program. I did not know that I was an addict. I mean, even though I grew up around addiction, it was like, well, you can't get arrested for overeating food. You can't get arrested for driving under the influence of food. It was like I was so arrogant, so unaware of my own illness, my own addiction. And what I heard in the rooms and what I was so impressed with were people got up and said things that I couldn't imagine myself ever even whispering in front of a confidant, much less stand up in front of a whole room of people and say, this is who I am, this is my journey. I mean. That honesty was riveting for me. It was so attractive. And especially when people talked about things like, well, I just lost my job and I'm trusting my higher power to find me a new one. And it's like, whoa, really? You really trust that? And, and I believed people. I believed them until I actually had evidence in my own life that that was the case. And what I realized was that my higher power has had my back the whole time. Things that I assigned little value to actually were the nuggets and the gems of my life. The things that I was distracted by in my disease that I thought were just wrongs that were done to me and grievances and grudges and resentments, those things began to get more right size as I got more recovery. And I think one of the things that really helped that was I started to notice how people worked in teams in recovery. You work with your higher power and you work with your sponsor and you work in a fellowship. And that was nothing that any diet ever gave me insight into. No book ever showed me that. And I read a, a lot of books about codependency, et cetera, et cetera. But it was until I actually saw people behaving in that way and I learned to trust that my sponsor was not error counting and waiting for me to make a mistake because that was, I was hardwired toward that. I was hardwired toward no one's going to help me. I have to do it myself. And so I had to really learn how to work on a team 
get out of the way and let my higher power, you know, like show me the way forward and to trust a complete stranger with things that I couldn't even say to myself, much less out loud to another person. So all those things were points of attraction for me. Now, was recovery easy? I, I will say, thank you, God. I did not have a, a big detox when I put down the flour and the sugar. I, that was not my, I did not have like a big physical reaction to that. But boy, I had the first few years I was in program, learning to be honest, open-minded and willing was, was a real journey, was a real journey. So how did that go? It's easy to be honest in the fellowship. How did that go outside the fellowship? Well, I can tell you that in working the steps, relationships that I had done scorched earth with had just burned through them, including my three living siblings. My youngest, my youngest sibling um, passed um, before I was, was able to make amends with him. But my three living siblings, through the process of working the steps and making amends, our relationship today, even though we're very different people, very different personalities, is the best it's been in, in my whole life. In fact, I got a call from my sister today who was probably the most accessible I've experienced her in a very long time. And that's been a journey in program. My eating buddies, on the other hand, and I had a whole posse of eating buddies, kind of went away for a while when I was first in program. And those relationships, I would, and I've been in, um, it'll be 13 years in, in March. Those relationships just literally in the last year or so have started to be restored. So I know that you know, I was making changes. I'm sure it was very confusing for people. Like, what is she doing? You know, she only eats at certain times. I'm no longer fun to go to a movie with because we used to eat before the movie. We used to supersize eat in the movie because if it's dark, it doesn't count, right? It doesn't count. You can't see me. And then we would go and have a meal afterwards. So if you ever come to where I live, I can take you to many movie theaters and restaurants because they all are in tandem in my brain. So that was, those relationships have taken longer to come to some kind of restoration. So what about relationships inside the fellowship, inside FA? I think because we all suffer from this disease, there's just a common denominator and a common language. And, uh, especially through the process of working the steps and AWOLs, um, you learn to just put yourself, your stuff out there, just own it, learn from it. And people are, you know, that there's something about that honesty that is a huge point of attraction for me to other people. Our lives may, may seem to be very different in our stories, but the fact that we have this common addiction and we're looking for recovery and a spiritual recovery in our lives, it's possible to talk to anybody in the fellowship because we all share that. I will say one other thing that since I've been in program, I'm married. I only am married in a good way because before I met my husband, that idea of being on a team was something that I became aware of and was able to practice safely with a sponsor and then, of course, with my higher power and with, with other fellows, I was not a team player. If we were going to do a play, I was going to write it. I was going to produce it. I was going to direct it. You're the actors. If I was on a, on a sports team, I was either coaching or I was the captain of the team. I mean, it was like I was, you know, I was the engine that, that drove the express. And that is, as any of us knows, that is... That is not a good way to behave with your sponsor or with your higher power or with your mate. So that's been a blessing in program. Yes, it sounds like it. So Dean, back with you then. Um, what was the thing that drove you to seek help? Yeah, it was, it was just that the, what was the term we use in program, the food had stopped working, you know, so I crossed the line and, and, and all the feelings that I was having, and I ate over the happiest of, you know, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows and every tick in between. 
it just wasn't working anymore. And uh, I was, you know, 300 plus pounds in a yoga studio. And I had noticed somebody was losing weight. And uh, I asked her what she was doing. And she actually told me very little. She said very little about what she was doing. But she said, there's this meeting, come to this meeting on a Sunday morning at this hospital. And I went to the meeting. And, you know, I sat in the back, I was suspicious. I, I, I wouldn't say I had a I, I wouldn't say that I had an open mind, but I, I was suspicious would be the best way to say it. People were way, they were first of all they were mostly thin. Everybody was mostly thin, and way too happy <laughs> for the state that I was in. But I left that meeting and I walked in the door and I told my wife, I think this is going to work. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even know what this was, but I said I think this is going to work. And her her side I always like to tell her side of the story. She says when I walked into the house, I was floating. And then I always joke, I don't know how a 300 guy, a 300 pound guy was floating anywhere, but apparently I floated in the house, you know? So the words I can put to it today, again, like I couldn't verbalize what, or couldn't put to the, you know, couldn't tell you what I really said to myself at nine, but I know the words I can put today are hope was born because there were people standing in the front of that room speaking about this disease, about this addiction, and about food the way I had used food my entire life, but they were thin and happy and I was fat and miserable. So something, I didn't believe it. You know, I didn't believe the pictures being passed around. I didn't, I didn't believe it because I didn't know any, I had two, I knew two people that had lost a significant amount of weight. One did it on his particular diet. He didn't really lose all the weight and he looked like the color gray. He looked gray, he didn't look healthy. And the other person did it by stopped eating, like ate an apple a day and over-exercised. So neither of them looked healthy, right? So anybody that I knew that lost any weight. And these people looked clear-eyed, smiling, dressed well, talked well, you know, and I, I was very suspicious, <laughs> but hopeful. So what do, what do you think gave you the hope? I, I can only point that back to my higher power, right? That some, there was something in the rooms and what we know is in the rooms is the spirit, the spiritual program, this higher power that's, that, and I, and I don't want to scare anybody away from any 12-step recovery by using that because that, if I wasn't as desperate as I was, I probably would have got up and walked out the door because we start and close every meeting with the serenity prayer. A, I didn't know it at the time, so I felt stupid. And B, I thought, oh, this God stuff, that, get, you know, stop i don't want to i don't get me to try to join your religion and of course that's not what anybody's doing here in recovery so that desperation and that you know the desperation that i had gave me enough of an open mind and i think the thing that gave me the hope was just that there is a solution there even though i didn't understand and in fact in our format it says go to several meetings to gain an understanding of what the program has to offer i went to several meetings i still didn't get it but then I asked that same friend, how do I, what do I, what's the sponsor thingy? Get me a sponsor. I want to, you know, I want to get started. And, and I got started and, and I always like to tell this because occasionally someone will come to me and say, thank you for saying that. Cause I don't want to scare anybody that's out there that may be looking for a solution. But when I got what we call abstinent from sugar and flour, that's our sobriety. We call it abstinence. It was a nightmare for me. It was a week of literally being in bed because I was now eating healthy food, which I'd never did before. And my body was detoxing in a major way. So like I've seen movies or TV shows with people kicking heroin. That was my experience. I'm shaky, I'm sweaty. I'm sweaty because I'm 300 pounds, but I'm sweaty also because this stuff is like coming out of my body. But I think that I was able to just kind of, um, I will say I suffered through it, but because of that hope that was born, I didn't feel like I, I could I would turn to the food anymore. I, I I knew that getting abstinent wasn't easy, but then to pick the pick the drug back up, for lack of a better word, pick pick those drugs back up would be ten times harder. So I just I white knuckled it because I didn't believe in a higher power, you know. So I was just like, it wasn't fun. But Little by slow, all those physical things I listed off to you started to disappear. The weight started just coming off. I mean, it just melts off. When you're honest with your food, it just melts off. And by the way, you know, the multi-billion dollar diet industry out there that tells you it's 
eat right and exercise. No, it's not. It's 100% what you eat. <laughs> I didn't exercise one lick to lose the 165 pounds in program that I lost. Not one bit. I weighed and measured my food with the, with the amounts that my sponsor gave me and the weight came off. And it came off for me in about 10 months. It, everybody's different, but you know, it, and so that was, that was the thing that in the beginning that kept me going, but it was very early. It's very, you know, early on, we, we don't speak in our meetings until you get 90 days of abstinence. I had already experienced like a miracle, a spiritual experience, all these things before I, before I even lost all my weight and before I could even get up in front of the room and share about it. I shared about it on my phone calls and with my sponsor, of course. So like the food, it all starts and stops with the food in the program. And once the food's in its right place, and then like, then you start to kind of see, oh, this is why I ate, or this is the thing. And you get to start dealing with those things. And that's, yeah. So how did it change your relationships with people? Oh my gosh. I, I became the person that my higher power wanted me to be. You know, I met my wife in uh, January of 2001. So I was, I don't know, I guess I was probably, let's just say 250 pounds, but I was, I was athletic. So in, I'm 5'9". I'm I was a big guy, but it, people didn't really razz me or call me fat. You know, unless you were really mad at me, nobody really said anything about my weight. But I met her in 2001. So she got to witness this, just this whole like deterioration of this, you know, where I went in this disease. Cause I came in a program in October of 05. And then she got to witness the rebirth in whatever you want to call it. The, the, you know, the, the new me come out and all those friendships that I, I was no longer showing up for little by slow, I was able to kind of bring them, bring them back, you know, bring them back and have, you know, good relationships that I had with people before. Like I said, I'd already said about my mom and my sister, like they didn't know, by the way, that I was super resentful and blah, 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 at them. This was all in my head, right? I'm the one drinking the poison, expecting them to die, right? Like it says in the AA book, you know, like th that's what resentments do to you. You know, you're, you're sitting here, stewing over here and people are just living their life you know so but but those relationships are healed um i have good relationships with my two siblings that are still alive i mean it, it's not deep but it's you know i i love them and we as a family because of the pandemic we'll we'll haven't done them lately but we've we've been doing these like family facetimes and just good to see them and catch up or whatnot and um you know i have two i have two daughters today and now now my youngest was three she's now 18 and my and my other one came two after came two years after i came in a program you know and i'm i am the absolute best dad i can be i know that if i wasn't if I didn't find recovery, I would not be the dad I am today. I would not be the husband I am. I would not be the employee I am. I would not be the son or the brother or the uncle. I just wouldn't be. I don't. I also don't believe I'd be. I wouldn't be alive today if I hadn't found the program. I just don't think I could have kept going. You know, I just. I. I don't know that I would have done anything. You know, to myself. But you know, it was. It was not a good road I was on. <laughs> it was not. So my relationships are great today, and and the beauty of being in recovery and, and working a spiritual program is that if something gets tweaked in a relationship, we get to work it in the program to, you know, fix it. You know, we do something wrong, we, we make amends immediately. You know, we don't wait and let it all fester. We make them, unless it's not appropriate to, of course, but we make the amends. And I think you'd ask Olivia the same question about in program, and it's the same thing in program, right? This ability to to open up to a sponsor, which then allows you to open up to, to fellows, which allows you to open up outside, out into the world to everybody. And obviously with the higher power at the top of all that is um, amazing. And then I've had like so many relationships in this program that have, you know, they ebb and flow, but we're always there for each other. You can pick up the phone. I can pick up the phone calls, five people in Australia right now, if I needed to, because it's, you know, morning there, evening here. And I have people all over this world that I can talk to at any time of the day if I'm having a problem. It's, it's beautiful. That's good. If anybody would like to find out more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, you can find them in Australia on 1-800-717-446 or go online at foodaddicts.org for local meeting information and contact information. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Olivia and Dean for sharing their Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I hope you'll be able to listen again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from drug addiction and we'll be joined by Jesse from Narcotics Anonymous.
Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Summer Radical Radio on 3CR. Thank <laughs> you.